Hi, and welcome back to Out of Curiosity. This is our podcast where we are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. I'm Nick. I'm Garland. And uh, today, as we are in the Easter season, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a question, a, a historical question that is at the center of what Christians believe. Was the tomb empty? of everything that we claim in the historical facts of Christianity, uh, things, everything divides on this question. Right. If Jesus rose again, if he was crucified, dead, and rose again, that historical fact makes our faith real. Yeah. And if that historical fact did not happen, it completely shreds mm-hmm. the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to talk about that question of historically, is this a valid claim and, and is the tomb empty? Well, I mean, the, the Apostle Paul even will go as far as to say in 1 Corinthians 15, if the tomb is not empty and Jesus did not appear, then our faith is useless. It is worthless. And that's a strong statement. And I know we've noted before on Out of Curiosity that the Bible is not afraid to put itself in the dirt, in real human history. It's not some fable or myth on some place that doesn't really exist with people that never really existed. This is setting itself in real history and allowing itself to be looked at and investigated. And uh, I think if you're listening to this and maybe you're skeptical or you've got a lot of big questions about uh, the Bible or Christianity, um, we, we, we might just know it. I've heard uh, many pastors, Tim Keller, I've heard say this many times. Uh, if you don't like what the Bible says about pick the topic, maybe gender or marriage or uh, exclusivity or all these various things. If you don't, if you don't like what the Bible says, and the, res- and the resurrection never happened, the tomb really was not empty, then who cares? It doesn't really matter. Right. All the claims that we're making don't, don't hold water. However, if the tomb really is empty, then what Jesus says about marriage and exclusivity and all that stuff is actually uh, something you have to take seriously. And yeah. so we might even invite you, if you are skeptical listening to this, to investigate the resurrection, investigate the tomb. And uh, Christianity stakes its whole claim there. And so what we want to do is we want to look first at maybe some, the, the reality, we might call it, of the empty tomb, like how can we find this to be reliable? And then we'll look quickly at the meaning. Does that work? Sounds great. About that. Um, <clears throat> so with that in mind, um, when we look historically at the empty tomb, there's really two things that, that we're looking at. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and there's two things that matter. The two things are these. First, we believe that the tomb really was empty. And second, we believe that Jesus appeared. So those two things together is what makes this a historically valid claim. One, that the tomb is empty. If the tomb was not empty and there was a body there and Jesus appeared, we might suspect that the disciples had drank too much or they were having some kind of, you know, bizarre experience or Jesus missing. wasn't the one who was crucified. Yeah. Maybe Jesus, yeah, somebody else died. So if they, if they, if they experienced appearances of Jesus, but the tomb wasn't empty, then that's suspicious. Sure. If, on the other hand, the tomb was empty, but there was no appearances, the likely explanation would be they must have stole the body or right. they must have just, they must have missed where the tomb was <laughs> um, or something like that. Right. And a lot of these situations, a lot of these um, examples have been thrown out there as possible, possible explanations of what happened. Mm-hmm. But when we put the two together, 
empty tomb, and the many claims of eyewitness appearances, now we have a historical question mark that we have to investigate. And we're going to use, there's a lot of ways we could tackle this, and a lot of different theologians and historians have done it. We're going to just use four things to kind of pinpoint answering this question move as quick as we can. The first is the expectation. Second, the women. Third, the timing. And fourth, the doubting. Ready? Yep, let's do it. So first, the expectation. Mm Mm-hmm. We shouldn't be surprised to have to say this. It shouldn't be surprising anybody. But in the ancient culture, especially the Jewish ancient culture, the first century, they knew that when people die, they stay dead. No, no, no. But weren't, I mean, weren't they supernaturalists who thought crazy, supernatural, godlike things happened all the time? Right. And of course, they were supernaturalists. Every ancient person was. They believed that there were deities and gods for everything. And the Jewish person believed that there was one deity named Yahweh who was in charge of everything. But they believed that when dead when people died, they stayed dead. So people coming back from the dead was not a part of their supernatural worldview of what they saw happening. No. And, and we look, when we look at the Old Testament in particular, uh, there is not a long developed explanation of the concept even of resurrection or, or even of an afterlife hardly. Mm-hmm. The Old Testament is very ambiguous as to the nature of what happens when a person dies. We get random little notes like in Daniel chapter 12 where it says there's two kinds of destinies at the resurrection. Those who are righteous will shine like stars, and then those who are not will f- face shame. But there's not a well-developed understanding of an afterlife. It seems that when you die in the Old Testament, you go to the place of the dead, mm-hmm. and you're not coming back from there. Yep. And that's that's how they understood it. That's how Romans understood it. That's how Jews understood it. There's no expectation for a first-century Jewish person the apostles, the disciples, the women, Paul, none of them are expecting Jesus to be resurrected. That's the last thing they're expecting. I think we we talk nowadays about this like, well, of course, they thought he was going to get resurrected. They were hoping for Jesus to get resurrected. And that's that's just a complete sham. That's not how they thought at all. Right. If there is a resurrection in the Hebrew way of thinking, it would be at the end of time where God would would bring resurrection and and would bring vindication to the righteous. They definitely don't think there's going to be the a resurrection of one in the middle of history. And what they did as I understand have a category for was like the appearance of a ghost. Sure. They had a category yeah. for that. You can think about Samuel appearing to Saul. Right. Um, that idea that that, that a, a dead spirit would reappear is something that did happen in the mythology mm-hmm. of the world. And so, interestingly, you think about when Peter was in prison in Acts, and he escapes miraculous from prison and goes and knocks on the door. They say, is that a ghost? It's his ghost. <laughs> yeah, it's a ghost. And, and even when Jesus first starts appearing to the apostles, what is their first reaction? They wonder if he's some, a ghost. Some kind of spirit. And so that's why he, when he eats food, that is very intentionally trying to show us that this is something different. Mm-hmm. This is not a ghostly mm-hmm. appearance. This is not some mystical, they're imagining the spirit of Jesus in their midst. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're trying to drive through. They, the ancient world had those two separate categories of a ghostly appearance and a bodily resurrection. Right. And... It's not as if we are more enlightened in the 21st century and think, oh, they had some spiritual experience they misunderstood as a resurrection. They actually had the categories of those spiritual experiences, 
and they would have naturally labeled it that way. Right. If that's what they understood. If that's what they happening. thought was going on. But they go out of their way to say that's not what's going on. Right. It's, by the way, when we read the stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's why they keep highlighting the empty tomb. People yes. keep running to see an empty tomb. And that's why they're highlighting that. This is not some spiritual appearance. That's the ex- expectation. Right. Second, the women. Um, I think uh, many people, I think, have noted this, and we'll just say it quickly. Uh, Non-Roman women in the ancient culture were not considered to be reliable witnesses for any sort of legal or courtroom material. So you might think if this is a made up story that the disciples are inventing, which I think the narrative of our culture goes something like this, uh, think the Da Vinci code, or maybe the last thing you saw on the national geographic channel or CNN or something, the narrative goes something like this. The the disciples wanted power. The church was trying to gain, gain power for itself. So they invented a story of resurrection to give themselves this sort of more power, this grand narrative. They missed Jesus a whole lot. And let's just, let's just go into the history lab for just a moment. One of our professors that we've had named uh, Daryl Bach that does it this way. I think it's really helpful. Imagine you're the PR firm for this early church. You're the mm-hmm. disciples, and you know you're trying to create a story and put it out there. You know it's not true, but you want power or you miss your leader, Jesus. So you get together and you're going to make a story up. Don't you think the last people you are going to have as your eyewitnesses, as the first people telling the story of the resurrection, will be people that are not credible witnesses in the courtroom? Like you can imagine, nobody would get that PR firm together and go, let's get the people whose voices don't count to be our first witnesses. You can imagine the pressure on the early church to take the women out of the story, and yet they leave them there. Why? It's because the story happened exactly how they're telling it, and regardless of how much pressure they might have felt to take it out, this is how the story went, and they're reporting historically what has happened. So as historians, our job is to ask, what is the most plausible scenario that gives rise to the story we have? Correct. And the idea that the writers of the Gospels were making up a resurrection story and would have chosen to insert women as the first witnesses is a very implausible it's, fiction. This is very unlikely. And so the, the most plausible explanation for why the women were the first witnesses is that that's what happened. That's what happened. And, and that the, the writers were recording the history. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could imagine if you're making it up, you'd have Jesus appearing to the most important people, the right. Caesars, and it'd make it very clear. Instead, you've got non-Roman citizen women. Right. Uh, we might say that's the same, a very similar point to the doubting. Notice the reaction of the disciples. These are these leaders, right? These are the ones who supposedly are making this story up for political reasons or to gain power or to put themselves close to this figure called Jesus. If that's what they're doing, then why in the world, I might ask, did they leave so many of the stories that make themselves look like idiots? Right. Like if you read the story, Luke presents it this way. The the women come and tell the disciples, and it says, they did not believe them because they thought what they were saying was a fantastic tale. Right. And then you've got Thomas saying, I won't believe this. I will never believe this unless I put my hand in his sides and in his, uh, in his hands. You've got the, almost all the apostles not recognizing Jesus, hold up in a room fearful, uh, not believing it. If you're making it up, same, same situation. Don't you think that's the very first thing you're going to take out is the mm-hmm. stories of all of you guys doubting? I mean, think about politics today. 
when people are looking at their record 20 years ago, if they voted on something unpopular, they're all trying to show how they really knew it was a bad idea then. Right, right. They're, yeah, they're, yeah, trying, yeah. To, they're <laughs> trying to revise to make themselves look better from right, 20 years right. ago than they are now. Nobody's going back and saying, when they actually voted against something unpopular, saying, hey, let me tell you how I, I actually wanted to vote the unpopular yeah, yeah. back then. They're not going back <laughs> yeah. and trying to make themselves exactly. look less intelligent 20 years ago. <laughs> Man, I was a fool back then. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're always trying to revise themselves to look smarter. Right. And right. so the idea that the apostles these people who supposedly are clamoring after political power and making up these stories would make themselves look like unfaithful buffoons. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if we're trying to be plausible historians, uh, there's a much more plausible history that gives rise to that story. And right. the plausible history is that they're being honest about what they experienced. Right. Yeah. So that's the expectations, the women, the doubting, lastly, the timing. And so this, we have to get a little, a little bit in the weeds here. If we look at 1 Corinthians 15, this is a really well-known passage in the New Testament. Paul says, uh, I am giving to you what I first received. This is the gospel message. And as he lists the gospel message, the, the question, and we, we've talked about this passage before, but the question becomes, what, what and when did Paul receive this message. The message of the gospel seems to be that Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried, was resurrected, raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then appeared to many according to the scriptures. Paul says, I received this message of the gospel. I received Mm -hmm. this news. And the question is, he's writing this Corinthian letter in the mid-50s AD. Jesus was crucified probably in either 30 or 33 AD. When did Paul receive that gospel message? And most, when we look at the life of Paul, we have that reception of the message, this gospel message, on his visit to Jerusalem. It's probably one of the most likely times, because he mentions, he mentions Peter and James here. And that visit is probably within a year or so of Jesus' death and resurrection. So think about what we're saying. Within a year of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is already widespread reporting of a resurrection and appearance of an empty tomb mm-hmm. and appearances. It's not, you know, 200 years later, the church was trying to make some stuff up or 70 years later within a year, Paul is receiving this message, which means it was circulating before that. So most, his, most biblical scholars and historians would say that gospel formula from first Corinthians 15 dates back to almost the death and resurrection of Jesus itself. And the reason that's important is, like, imagine I wanted to invent a story. Let's say I wanted to tell a story, and that story was uh, there was a time when Nick began to fly. (laughs) And he had a crazy experience of flying. He lifted up off the ground, and he flew around northwest Arkansas for 10 hours one day. And he appeared to many people, and he he was circling around, flying all around northwest Arkansas, all around Springdale and Rogers and Fayetteville and Bentonville. And then he landed his supernatural flight. Now, if I am inventing that story... And I want to convince people of that story. What I'm going to have to do is set the timing of that story back far enough to where people that lived in Northwest Arkansas that would have seen that appearance, right. would have seen that flight, are all dead and gone. Right? Wouldn't I? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't tell that story. We're sitting here right now in March. I would not tell that story in a month and say, hey, back a month ago, Nick flew around and he appeared to thousands of people in Northwest Arkansas. Why? Because... People in Northwest Arkansas that were alive then are still alive now. Right. And they're going to say, wait a second. We all know. We were there. And if you look at the gospel stories, I think this is why, like, Mark will note 
He'll say, this person carried Jesus' cross. And then he makes this weird addition. Oh, and by the way, he, he's the father of these two, and they live in this city. Go ask him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the, the gospel's going out of its way to say, these people, the, the story that we're telling, those people are all alive. You can go check, go verify it. If you're going to make a story up, the timing of a fantastical story would have to be way back in the past when everybody died. Right. Otherwise, they're just going to go, no, man, dude, we were there. That, that didn't happen. And so the expectation, the women, the doubting, and the timing. I'll, I'll quote from a, a historian and a Christian theologian that we both like and read. Uh, he just says this. His name's N.T. Wright about the resurrection. He says, to summarize this, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meanings or the sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was, in, was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. Wow. I think he's around the money. I think he's, he's helping us to see that this is not, this is a historical a historical fact, a historical event that we can look at and verify. And the burden of proof, we might say, is on somebody trying to say that this was indeed made up or yep. an invented tale. I would say that, well, let's, let's have that conversation. Let's discuss that. But there is a, there is a historical uh, event that we can look at and verify. And uh, I think N.T. Wright is helpful in that statement. Very, very good. So to, to close this out then, you, you alluded even in the N.T. Wright quote, not just to the events, but the meaning of the events. Right. So talk to us a little bit about what, what does this event of the resurrection in the empty tomb mean? Well, that's the, that's the good part. That's mm-hmm. the best part. Uh, and and just, just to quote from him again, because he'll, he'll say it succinctly, and uh, we'll, just let this, we'll just let this lie. The resurrection was the public divine declaration that Jesus was indeed Israel's Messiah, and hence the world's true Lord. Mm. The resurrection is not a simply a historical fact. It is a historical fact that has present earth-shattering meaning. And as followers of Jesus, man, we got to dig into that meaning this Easter. And so mm-hmm. we're trying to give a little bit of help to the fact of the empty tomb and how we could be confident in it, but the meaning, we got to dive in this Easter. Yeah, that's good. Well, Thanks, Garland, for, for guiding us through some of the history and the theology of that event, and, uh, and I hope it, it brought clarity to the question of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus we celebrate. Thanks for listening to Out of Curiosity. Thank you for listening to Out of Curiosity as we discussed the evidence for the empty tomb. We encourage you to look into this even more in Scripture, in John chapters 20 and 21, and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 6. We also recommend the books The Reason for God by Timothy Keller and The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. If you want to send in a question or contact us, go to oocuriosity.com and follow us on Instagram at oocuriosity. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with future episodes.